That's thanks to you. Thanks to you that we are alive. Thanks to you, Lord, for the opportunity and the privilege to worship and pray. Thanks to you, Lord, for this worship team that you lead and that you guide and that you give to us to guide us in worshiping you. We give you thanks for them, Lord. Hallelujah. Uh, what, what time is it? What time is it? Does anybody, does anybody have the time? Who, who has the time? Ra- raise your hand if you've got the time. You've got the t- Pastor Henji, you have the time? You have it? You have it. Can you change it for me? I need like five more minutes. Well, you know I need more than five more minutes. I need ten more minutes. You, you have the time. You can give it to me. You can give me the ten more minutes. Wait. I want it to be ten... 12 right now. Can you make you have the time so you can change the time? That's an hour. Can you change the time? Actually, you do not have the time. He doesn't have the time to change the time for me. Why am I being so mean to Pastor Henji? He's the nicest man on earth. But I, I, uh, that's right. Give him a hand, folks. Uh, I hate to break it to you, but the time has you. The time has you. Uh, someone said, time stops for no man, even for someone as nice as Pastor Edgy. I'll give him time, but I don't have it. Time has me. What time is it? Well, how could I know? I have a watch. A watch. What's a watch? Why is it called a watch? That's, it's got the time. And see, it's like, it's got me. <laughs> it's a handcuff. I'm handcuffed to the clock. A watch is called a watch because it keeps watch. It keeps watch on the time. It's a watchman on the wall. Well, my arm is more or less a wall, I guess. A watch. You know that in the English language, the word watch and wake, as in wake up, as in awake, have the same root. They're variations of the same word. Watch. Wake. Be alert. See the time and the signs of the times. You know, Jesus taught very potently on this subject. What time is it? And does the time have you? (laughs) If you and I are subject to a clock, and we are, make no mistake, that's part of God's design. God has placed us in history. God has placed us in the flow of time. God has placed us in chronology. Then there is a very real way in which the time has got us. And yet what the Lord wants to tell us is you can understand the times. And you can know what time it is. But you must be awake. You must be alert. You must be watching, looking. Now, What's more patient than a watch? Old-time watches, you had to wind them up. And as long as they were wound up, they kept the time. But eventually, they wound down. And has that ever been you or me? We wind up and wind down, don't we? And maybe in recent times, we've been wound down by the time that has got us. And we think, I'd rather live in a different time. But you don't get to make that choice. But remember this. God, who does make that choice, 
chose you to live in this time, chose this time for you to live in. For such a time as this, God appointed you. To do what? To go to sleep? Well, God gives rest. But in our spirit, to be awake. In fact, a good cycle of rest is part of keeping your clock wound up. It's part of keeping you going in keeping time with the things of the Lord. We're beginning a new sermon series today on parables of patience. I'm going to ask if the guys in the booth can bring my slides up because I'm going to begin to share from you, with you from this series and particularly from the book of Matthew. You can turn to chapter 24 if you wish. That is where we will be studying today. This new series on parables of patience begins with you and I considering the time, the season, and how the Lord has said that we are to be ready for his return. Even as Pastor Hinge was just reminding us. Today we're going to talk about patiently awaiting the return of the king. Today we're going to talk about what time it is. So, are you awake? Wake up. Get ready. Because the Lord wants to speak to you and I today about being patiently prepared for his return. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize in your word there are alarms and alerts that we do not want to snooze through. We don't want to just hit the spiritual snooze button today, Lord. We want to wake up and rise up, filled up with the purpose of your patient perseverance to prevail in your purpose, for your will, as your people, in your name, by your spirit. And Lord, founded upon your word. We need your word as we need your spirit. And your spirit is in your word, and your word comes from your spirit. And so by your spirit, Lord, we ask that you would awaken us today, alert us, advise us, enlighten us, reveal to us, Lord, how we may more patiently prepare in awaiting your return. And living our lives every day, awake and alert to your presence. In your name we pray. Part one of Parables of Patience starts today. The first grain of sand going down through the hourglass there. A tip of the hat to days of our lives. If anybody remembers that old hourglass. Like sands through the hourglass, so go the days of our lives. I really didn't watch that show. I find myself referencing it this year more than I ever thought. Not that there's anything wrong with watching it. I just didn't. In any case, today, Parables of Patience begins. And it's going to take us through this month of October and into November. But today is an auspicious time, I think, to begin such a series because it happens to correspond with the conclusion of the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, which is traditionally associated symbolically with preparation for the return of the Messiah. Even in Judaism, the expectation of the Messiah that we recognize is revealed in the advent of Jesus Christ, a season of waiting that you and I will be entering into in just a few weeks, believe it or not. It's also true that there are many in the world today who do not recognize or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is that Messiah, but there is still an expectation in their hearts and in their beliefs for the arrival of a Jewish Messiah. Our prayer with all charity towards anyone of that persuasion is not to be in any way religiously uh, prejudicial in our attitude, but rather filled and animated with the presence of Jesus Christ ourselves, there can be no greater joy in our hearts than to express 
the reality of his presence, the actuality of his arrival, and alertness to the imminence of his return that would be part of our witness to people of all faiths and all backgrounds, but maybe particularly to the covenant people of God that he has claimed from of old. Because the Jewish nation and the Jewish people are precious to the heart of God. And it was through the Jewish people that we received the Savior. And salvation comes, as the Apostle Paul says, to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. Now then, Paul said, if the resistance and rejection of so many Jewish people of the Messiah brought about the salvation of the nations of Gentiles, then how much more will the embrace of the Jewish people of their own Messiah bring about the fulfillment and grandeur of God's good things for all the world? That's part of what we anticipate. That's, that's a good measure, I think, for you and I of recognizing, is my heart in tune with the Lord's? We've, we've uh, just been through a long series on the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, and we've been talking about King Saul, and we've made the discussion of the distinction between King Saul and King David that would follow him, and you remember what it is. The distinction primarily has to do with the disposition of heart. The Lord looks upon the heart. There was a problem with Saul's heart, and that is that it wasn't in tune, it wasn't in time with God's. Not in step, not in measure, not in harmony with God's. But in David, the Lord saw a man after his own heart. And what might it mean to be a woman or a man after God's heart? Let us say that it could mean and should mean that we run after God's heart. That we chase after God's heart. That we desire to know God's will. And if we know God's will and if we know and have God's heart, then we will know that God's desire is that all people should be saved, that none should perish, and that you and I should be his witnesses, patiently persevering to the end, to the end. But then the question comes, well, when is the end? I know many people have that thought in their mind when I'm preaching, when is the end? <laughs> but when Jesus is talking about the end, He's talking about something meaningful to every human being. When will the end come? It's a simple enough question, but the answering of it is not always easy. And so, as Jesus did so many times, on one occasion when he was being asked about the end and when it would come and what would be the signs, Jesus turned to one of his favored teaching mechanisms, a delivery system so potent and powerful and pithy and dramatic that it constitutes a, a cornerstone of Jesus' teaching style. He used parables. Parables, we're familiar with the term, and in general it means a short, simple story, often using symbolic meanings, and generally intended to convey a moral or a spiritual lesson, particularly when it was being used by the rabbis of Jesus' era. Jesus himself, a rabbi, a teacher is what the word means. And so Jesus taught using parables quite frequently, not entirely, not exclusively, but as it turns out, fully one-third of the synoptic gospels, that is, the three first gospels that share very much overlapping material, although there is correspondence between all of the gospels and uniqueness in all of the gospels, but synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. One-third of what Jesus is recorded as saying in those synoptic gospels are parables, roughly. It depends on how you define parables, and sometimes Jesus' word pictures are very fast and fleet, 
but they usually have a very significant, well, I should say they always have a very significant message. So there are some that we might uh, classify as parables that others might not. But in any case, there is a good bulk of Jesus' teaching that involves the innate drama of a story or very vibrant imagery that vividly paints a picture, a, a, a word picture or a symbol that helps people to understand and also to remember what Jesus is teaching. The parables are often considered some of the most memorable lessons that Jesus shared. In this series, we'll be looking at just a few of them. My plan, by God's grace, is to have a kind of uh, counterpart series to this next year's where, well, well, we will look at additional parables, some of the parables we've studied together before. But the ones that we're looking at in this series have a particular theme, and it has to do with patience. I'll come to that in a moment. But let me share a thought with you about parables in general as a, as a, a teaching mode in the ancient world in which Jesus lived and taught. Uh, there's a theologian named Brad Young who's written a book on the parables. Uh, it was published in the late 90s. Who writes, the reality of God is revealed in the word pictures of Jesus' parables. In other words, very frequently, Jesus' parables are enlisted to help you and I understand the nature of God and the nature of the kingdom of God. Now, these stories challenge us at an intellectual level. In fact, Brad Young says, at the highest intellectual level, even though they are often delivered in the simplest of form, very simple stories utilizing very common sense. And that common sense helps to, to uh, provide a, a focal lens and uh, exploratory and explanatory tool for the complexities of religious faith. It's not easy, is it, to understand the, the faith to which God has called us? It is easy to embrace it, but to live it out and to understand all the depths of the infinite God in our finite terms, that's a, that's a rather significant challenge. And so, as Brad Young says, in finite terms, bottom line, God is beyond comprehension because God goes beyond finite terms. It stands to reason that any infinite being goes beyond finite explanations. It's not that they're not valuable or worthy. It's that they are always ultimately somewhat incomplete, at least in a comprehensive sense. But on the other hand, the infinite majesty of God, the mystery of God. I talked about that in this past Wednesday's prayer meeting when I did a summary of the book of Ephesians, which could really be described as Paul's letter about the mystery of God, which is God's will revealed to us. If you'd like to hear a recording of that teaching, text or email me. I recorded it so that I could share it with you. In any case, the infinite majesty and mystery of God can be captured and conveyed in simple terms, in fact, in terms simple enough that a child could understand them. You know, the parables of Jesus are often taught in Sunday school. I hope that you and I would never fall into the trap of thinking that relegates them to merely childish thinking because they're not childish, but they can be childlike. But they are as available to a two-year-old in many cases as they are to a 20-year-old or an 80-year-old, although it is also true that the closer that you look at them, let me say that again, the closer that you look at them, the more attention that you pay to them, the greater that you dig into them, often the more treasure that you will find. But all of that treasure can be captured in the simple story of daily life.
And that's what Jesus often does in the parables. As I've mentioned, many of his parables relate to moral and spiritual character traits, and patience is certainly a pivotal one of those. Patience, as we've talked about this whole year, our year of patience, but if you're a guest with us today, I want to tell you, even if you're not part of PCF, the Lord is saying to you, what time is it? It's time for you to learn more about patience. Boy, that's the truth, isn't it? Turn to the person next to you and say, it's time for you to learn more about patience. I'm glad that I'm not sitting next to my wife right at the moment because I already know I need to hear that from her. <laughs> Patience is character building, is faith developing. And in fact, when we think about parables and the mode of teaching in parables, well, isn't it true that parables actually kind of demand a certain kind of patience, do they? Don't they? They require you to have patient attention. The hearer has to listen up for the message, has to rightly divide the word that's being given, has to lean in for the lesson. Will you do that today? Not for my words, but for Jesus's. Will you lean in for the lesson? Will you listen to the message of the Messiah? It takes attention. There is a wonderful French philosopher her name was Simone Weil, and she wrote a letter to a priest that became an essay, one of her well-known essays, it was written in 1942, in which she said, prayer, listen to this now, prayer consists of attention. I think this is an extraordinary insight. Say it, prayer consists of attention. You know what that means? You can look at your watch and say, it's time for prayer. But if your mind is thinking about other things, you're not just wasting your time, you're wasting God's. Well, that's a little bit of hyperbole. I don't know if it's entirely possible to waste God's time. But I feel that God would say this, inasmuch as you waste your time, you waste mine. Because your time, says the Lord, is precious to me. I think, I truly believe, our days are more precious to God very often than they are to us. Maybe it's because they cost him more. In any case, God knows the value of time. And you know what? Who's got the time? He does. He's the one who holds time in his hand. And it's just one of the things that he holds. So when you and I come to him to pray, we're not coming for some casual enterprise. It can be comfortable at times, and other times it will be uncomfortable. It can be intimate and should be. But it's important. Prayer is the single most important activity of your life. So pay attention. Because God is speaking when you are praying. And God can be speaking even when you're not praying. And he may be saying to you, it's time to pray. Simone Weil says that this kind of attention, this kind of prayer, is the orientation of all the attention of which the soul is capable toward God. How much attention is the soul capable of? That's sort of like saying, how deep is the ocean? 
I do believe there's probably a finite measure. It depends on what part of the ocean you're going to, I suppose. But if you go deep enough, it's very deep indeed. Oh, the power that you and I have when we bring our attention to bear on anything. Simone Weil, who is famous for her contemplations of the value of work, was actually writing and describing about, if you can believe this or not, being a student in school. She was saying that when you or I or anyone brings attention to a subject like geometry or history or, or cursive writing or whatever it is, that there is a spiritual aspect of our attention so that even if you don't learn that lesson or even if you don't think that lesson is very important, something is important in the fact that you've given attention to it. And she describes it as having a, a, a spiritual quality, a quantum of the spirit. Now then, is there anything more worthy of our attention than God? There is not. But when we bring all that we can of our attention to God, we will discover a few things. And we found this in this Saturday prayer group, haven't we? The more attention we give to God, the more of God we experience in us. And the more of God's activity we see around us. Our attention is part of God's intention. It's part of his purpose that you and I would learn to look to him, to wait on him, to listen for him, and even to love the things that he loves. The quality of attention, Simone Weil said, counts for much in the quality of the prayer. In other words, how much attention you are giving to God through your prayer is a great measure of how valuable that prayer actually is, the quality of it, how effective it is. Warmth of heart, she says, cannot make up for it. In other words, emotion is all well and good, and God is the God of our emotions, so I'm not dismissing that. But if you really want to love the Lord, give him your attention. Obedience will be found in the giving of attention. Repentance and correction will be received in the giving of attention. The spirit can be sensed greater in you and I, by you and I, when we give him attention. Warm feelings and good intentions are all well and good. But you know what the saying is about good intentions. It's the pathway to hell. Why? Because good intentions are bad? No, because they're not enough. But when we turn our attention to God, he is enough and more than enough, and we will see in him answers to our needs. We will get from him answers to our questions, and in fact, understanding for our lives. And that's what Jesus said when his disciples asked him, in perhaps a rather pointed way, why the heck do you talk in parables? Everybody's confused. These, these disciples, these apostles, that's why we have a class on them. I love these guys. I can relate to them. They come to Jesus and said, nobody knows what you're talking about. You're telling these stories, and we're all scratching our heads. Why do you, why do you teach this way? And Jesus said, because the knowledge of the secrets, the word that he used there in Greek is mysterion. That's what we talked about on Wednesday. You want to know more about that? You can get the, the recording from me if you weren't part of our Wednesday meeting. But suffice it to say, it has to do with the will of God being unveiled. Something that is known, 
but is not immediately evident to the casual observer, but can be made known to the attentive student, to the, the attentive disciple. That's the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. I posted to our interest, Instagram account yesterday a wonderful quote that I don't have here in the slides from Dallas Willard, that great uh, philosopher and theologian who's now with Jesus. And he talks about what is the kingdom of heaven. And just to summarize it as succinctly as I can, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is the will of God at work. It is where and how God's will is flowing. Now, what does that mean? That the kingdom of heaven is everywhere. Because, friends, not even in the lowest depth of hell is God's will obstructed. God's will flows through heaven and hell, through earth and all that is below, and all that is above, and all the far-flung stars, and inside the center of every solar furnace, burning in every far-flung corner of the darkness, and every blazing place of light, God's will supersedes and indeed oversees all of it. That's the kingdom. But you and I are often not attentive to the kingdom. Do you realize that even at this moment, all the machinery, if you will, of the majesty of God's mystery is right here, present, in every sparkling flake of dust in the air, every breath that you and I take. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is right here. And what he's saying is God's will. You can know it. You can do it. You can be in it, part of it, filled by it. Enjoy it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And so Jesus says, I'm telling you these stories about the natural world to reveal to you a truth about the supernatural reality. But not everyone can receive it. So I tell it to you in parables. And indeed, Jesus would speak these parables. And then in private, in private, he would explain them to his close disciples. Oh, well, how exclusive of Jesus. No, what Jesus was doing was advise, following his own advice that we not cast pearls before swine. That you don't just throw open the curtains on everything in front of everyone. I remember many years ago, I might have told this story before, I was a teenager, I think. We were at um, Disneyland, and we were on uh, Space Mountain, or we were waiting in line on Space Mountain. That, that's what most of the time there is, right? At least Disneyland knows, make the line look beautiful, because you're going to be in it forever. So, you know, the happiest place on earth to wait. Hey, you want to learn about patience? Go to Disneyland. Notwithstanding the fast pass. It's been a long time since I've been there, so maybe, uh, maybe, maybe things have improved in that regard. But I remember it was uh, July. It was super hot. We were in that, that area uh, waiting to get in. And all of a sudden, you heard the characteristic kind of sound. I can't mimic it, but it's the sound of a bunch of mechanical things grinding into each other to a halt, you know, and then just dead silence. And the next thing that we immediately noticed was the air conditioning was off. I don't really know why the air conditioning and the roller coaster would be tuned to the same thing, but it seemed that they were. And then the next thing you heard was, you know, people in the background, you couldn't tell what they were saying, but you knew it wasn't good. You know, it's just something's off. And then all around the room, because it's a room, lights start flickering on. And they're not those great atmospheric, you know, spotted lights that Disney knows how to focus. It's just fluorescence, banks and banks of fluorescence. 
That was the ugliest room. I mean, it came up, and you looked around, and you were in this horrible kind of cafeteria warehouse. And it seemed to me that everything only had about an inch of clearance from the wall. I'm sure that's not accurate. But that track was packed into the smallest possible building that it could feasibly fit in. At that point, I determined I will never put my hands out on that thing again because I didn't realize that you're that close to the wall. Again, probably an exaggeration. But all the mystery of it evaporated in a moment. That's it? That's that. You know, you, think, you feel like you're flying around Jupiter, and then you look at it and you think, it's just a warehouse in Anaheim. And it's hot. And it's not even running. Of course, it got running, and then the lights went out. You know what? We gave ourselves over to the wonder of it again. But it's all kind of an illusion. <laughs> it's a lot of spinning around, but you're going nowhere. When you come out, you're in the same place as when you went in. <laughs> Can you imagine what people of ancient times would have thought if they saw us on roller coasters? They have this technology that will take them all around the world, and they spin around in a warehouse in Anaheim with the lights out. It's fun as a diversion. But if you were really paying attention, you might see that it's not taking you anywhere. And Jesus wants people who are willing to pay attention. He will turn on the lights. But then what you find is that it's the opposite. That everything looked enclosed and limited and difficult. Suddenly, the boundaries have expanded. Suddenly, what's in the dark and brought into the light in God is more glorious than what you've already seen. Now, life is pretty good when life is good. Wouldn't you agree? When things are going well and all is right with the world, when you're in love, when you're happy, when you've got a dollar in the bank and a dollar in your pocket, and you're feeling good, and there's a full plate of food in front of you, life is good. But God is even greater, because he's the one who made all of that. I don't know if we can exactly lay the dollar at his feet, but he's the resource, and he has more. Jesus says, I want to show you more. But those who refuse to pay attention... Even when it's presented to them, they don't see it. They're waiting in line for something else. And so the prophet Isaiah said, they, they hear, but they don't hear. Their ears and their hearts and their minds have all become calloused. Now then, that is a teaching that we'll look at a little bit more next week because it plays into one of the parables that we're going to see then. But today, let's look at one of these mysteries that Jesus reveals, and it comes in Matthew 24. It is associated with a parable that is often simply referred to as the parable of the fig tree, but there are several parables about fig trees and even some episodes with fig trees in the Gospels. And so to distinguish this one from others, and we will touch on some of the others too, we could refer to this one as the budding fig tree. Will you say that, the budding fig tree? That means a fig tree that is putting out leaf. In other words, it's green, and it's giving evidence of the season and of the fact that it's about to bear fruit. It's a parable that Jesus uses, an everyday recognizable item, uh, part of agriculture, as Jesus' parables often are, that is nevertheless intended to teach his attentive disciples how to patiently prepare for his promised return. Wouldn't you, you and I would like to learn that too, right? We want to be ready. Don't you want to be ready? For the king, then be patient and be watching. Let's look at this. 
In Matthew 24, Jesus says words that ought to light a fire in us and ought to gain our attention. Be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Jesus doesn't say something like this just to try and stir up a response. He means it. What time is it? Has anyone got the time? It's time for this. Are you, are you hearing? Wake up. You won't expect his coming, so be ready for it always. In the middle of the night, at the beginning of the day, in the middle of your lunch, in every conversation you have with a colleague, a coworker, a boss, a subordinate, every drive that you take on the freeway, every time that you stroll through the store, when you're in the tub, when you're bathing the dog, when you're yelling at your kids. I know none of you do that. What if Jesus came right when you were in a fight with your spouse? Oh, maybe that's something to think about when you're in a fight with your spouse. Because you know what? Jesus is there hearing everything that is said and more. Because he has the lights turned on. He sees what's inside the heart. If you think a warehouse in Anaheim is a disappointment, what must Jesus think when he turns on the light in our heart and sees everything cramped into that little space and all of our worries and ambitions and ego and anger boiling around like a little roller coaster of rotten sinful, fleshly attitude. And he might come back right then. Because it's easy for you and I to say, well, I'm having my moment. I get to have my moment. I'm angry right now. <laughs> you can have that moment, but Jesus has it too. In fact, it's like having the time. You can have that moment, but in reality, that moment has you. It's got you in its tangled little web. And the one who holds the moment and can free you is the one that is there. But in those moments, we don't want to think about him, do we? You ever have that feeling? I don't want to think about Jesus right now. I'll think about him in a moment. Give me a second. I know what he has to say. I don't like it. So just shut up. Oh, we never do that, do we? We do it all the time. And God is so patient. He bears with us. But like a good parent, he's saying, you know, you better stop that and get ready. <laughs> Remember the, the old story that parents used to say? My parents never said this, and I made all kinds of crazy faces. But kids would make the crazy face, and then the mom would say, stop that. Your face is going to freeze like that forever. <laughs> that is something in the spirit, though. God's saying, you live like this day in and day out. You better stop like that or you'll be like that forever. Because a day is coming when you step into eternity. But if you're awake and alert right now, what you would realize is eternity is already active right here and now in you. So watch out and be ready. You see, if we really start to think about it, it really starts to matter. In this chapter, 
we're going to look at the last sequence where Jesus tells a parable of the fig tree that is really about, will you say this phrase? It's there in blue, patient observance. And then he follows it up by describing people in the field, people in various locations, and something happening right in the middle of the workday, as it were. And it's about patient service. Will you say that? Patient service. And then finally, the coming of the Lord. That's the culmination of the explanation of this whole sequence in the scripture. And it is about patient preparation. Say that, will you? Patient preparation. I ask you to repeat those three things because they're really pivotal to what Jesus is saying in the scripture here. Be alert, and it requires patience, so don't lose your patience for that. Be actively engaged in doing what God has called you to do, and whatever you are engaged in, be paying attention for God in the middle of it. No matter what your job is, no matter whether you're a student, no matter what, be attentive to God in each moment so that you can be prepared. Now, in observing the parable of the fig tree, I want to observe a few things about fig trees in the scripture. And you may remember from about two and a half years ago that uh, I did uh, a message on uh, some of Jesus' parables on the fig trees. And we talked a little bit about this at that, at that time. So it's kind of a review, but I'm sure it's a grateful re refresher for most people. In the scripture, when trees are mentioned in the Bible, the fig tree is the third kind that's mentioned. The very first tree that is mentioned with any specificity is, in Genesis 3, the tree of life. And the next is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, you'll remember that the tree of knowledge of good and evil was the one tree that God said, don't eat of this fruit. If you do, the day you eat of it, you will die. What time is it? Death time. If you disobey, death arrives in that moment. They didn't drop dead in that moment, but they died in that moment inasmuch as their relationship with the Lord was fatally struck by their disobedience. Now then God put them out of the garden because he said, otherwise they may reach out and grab the fruit of the tree of life, which is a fruit that God wants to give to you and I, but it's fruit that can't be stolen, it has to be. And so in our disobedience, the trees mattered. Now, those are both in Genesis 2.9, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But in Genesis 3, the fig tree is mentioned. At the moment that the first man and woman, we know them as Adam and Eve, disobeyed and ate of the fruit, their eyes were opened. You see, the lights were turned on. And what they saw was, we've got nothing on. But the reality is, it wasn't that the lights were turned on. It's that their covering was removed. Or rather to say, they walked out from under it. God had clothed them in his relationship. And they were able to be naked and unashamed because they were in intimate relationship with God and each other. But the moment that they violated and killed that relationship by disobeying God's word, they walked out of the covering and they were left naked. Now, it's not just embarrassment and shame that comes upon them, although that's a reality, but it's also risk. If you want to run through the jungle naked, get ready to be snapped at, bitten, <laughs> swatted and slapped, because there's all kinds of things around, thorns and bugs and animals, right? And so they need to cover themselves, cover their shame, cover their vulnerability. And so they go to the fig tree, because it's got nice big leaves. I don't know that they're ideal for covering, but that's what they could find. You see, they went to whatever they could find. 
So they got fig leaves, they sewed them together. And from that point on, in the Jewish uh, Bible, in the Judeo-Christian scriptures, the fig tree is representative of two things. God's provision, he's the one that planted the tree, he's the one that gives it with its leaves and its fruit, but also people's disobedience and their effort to try and grab resource and do it their own way. It's a very King Saul kind of way of being, isn't it? To tip our hat to the previous sermon series. So they cover themselves in fig leaves. Now God actually makes a sacrifice for them instead. He gives them animal skins to cover them, the shedding of blood to cover their shame and to provide for them. But it's a temporary kind of provision. Ultimately, it's Christ that you and I are called to put on. It's Christ whose blood is shed for us. Christ is the tree of life, and the leaves of Christ are what clothe you and I in the intimate relationship that he offers. The fig tree is, is actually visible in worship. Here's an ancient engraving of the menorah that was in Herod's temple. Maybe you can see that it's like a tree, right? This lampstand, it has a central trunk and then these branches that are actually somewhat familiar as the shape of a fig tree. This is an actual fig tree with few leaves on it so you can see that menorah-like branching of its uh, arms. Now, this is a design that God gave to Moses for the tabernacle, and later it was used in the temple. And you can see that it visually resembles a fig tree, although it's not just associated with a fig tree. It has buds and blossoms on it that are to look like uh, those of the almond tree and so forth. But clearly, there is a sense in this lantern that is lighting the space, the sanctuary of God, that is saying, here is a tree of light and life, that is a reminder to us of our need for forgiveness from disobedience and of God's provision of life and light. So that's what we see anytime we see the fig tree in Scripture. And the hearers of Jesus, if they were paying attention, could know that when Jesus starts talking about a fig tree, all of these things are on the table. They're at play. They're in the mix. God's provision, ordained worship, Human rebellion, God's judgment, God's grace, it's all there and can be thematically applied. But it would take the wisdom of the Spirit for us to rightly comprehend and interpret it, wouldn't it? Now, there is a parable of the barren fig tree that you may remember. You can find it actually in Luke 13, which interestingly enough, there's a portion of today's chapter in Matthew 24 that shows up in Luke 12 also. Remember the synoptics, these are both synoptic gospels, have lots of shared material, but they often place it in different places. And by the way, that's not a point of concern or it shouldn't be something that makes you think, well, which one is right? Because the gospel writers weren't usually intending to give us a chronology of exactly what Jesus said at what point in time from this day to that day. There are times when they are doing that, and when they're doing that, they make it clear. But when it comes to Jesus' general teaching, Often, the gospel writers are taking material and putting it where it seems to them most thematically comprehensible. And so sometimes, because they have different thematic agendas, they will put the material in different places. The other thing is, Jesus probably told many of these stories more than once. 
And so one gospel writer may be recounting when he told it in one location, and another may be using a different time. In any case, I bring all of this up not only to mention that there is this overlap of material, but to say that there's an interesting juxtaposition to be found. In Luke chapter 12, when Jesus is talking about preparing for the end and how some people will not be ready, this story of the barren fig tree follows immediately in the next chapter. In other words, Luke immediately then writes about the parable of the barren fig tree. In this parable, we'll tell it quickly, a man has a fig tree on his property. It was planted in his vineyard, which was a very common thing. Grapevines and fig trees were often planted together. They, they grow harmoniously together. And both of these, the fig tree and the grapevine, become symbols of Israel in Scripture, by the way. So he comes and he looks for fruit. What time is it? It's time for the figs to be on the tree. But what's the reality? Ain't no figs on the tree. So it's angry owner time. I came here ready to eat. There's nothing to eat. I planted this for a prophet. I had an intention of growth. Now the tree hasn't grown. And it's not the first time. And it's not the second time. This is the third season in which this tree has not produced any fruit. So the owner says, cut it down. Why, why should I waste space? Plant something else there. But the one who tends the garden says, oh, no, please, just, just leave it one more year, sir. One more year. I'm going to put fertilizer around it. I'm going to water. I'm going to weed. And if it doesn't produce fruit next year, then cut it down. So Jesus, in Luke, has talked about, I'm coming back and not everybody's going to be ready for me. And then he tells this story. So what time is it? You tell me. Are you paying attention to the story? The story is about a tree that is intended to reflect God's provision, but also historically related to human disobedience. And that disobedience evidences itself in the fact of no fruit. Elsewhere in the scripture, Jesus talks about spiritual fruit being the character changes in us. Paul will describe them in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And if God looks in our hearts and in our lives and sees no fruit, year after year after year, he says, cut it down. But Jesus, who is himself God, is saying to us, you have this intercessor. And it's Christ. And he's saying, one more year, one more season of time to bear fruit. And then he tells us how, John 15, abide in me. I will abide in you. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But if you don't, you won't bear any because the flesh profits nothing. And the, the workers of the Lord come, the angels come, and they gather the branches that bore no fruit and they throw them into the fire. So Jesus is saying, wake up. Now is the time to live for the Lord. So in Matthew 24, Jesus tells another fig tree parable, but they have a relationship to each other in the broader scriptures. So what is the context that leads to Jesus telling this? It's what's known as the little apocalypse. That sounds happy, doesn't it? What time is it? It's the little apocalypse time. It sounds like a children's show. It's little apocalypse time. 
I don't know what that would be, but I don't think it would be good. Little apocalypse comes in and just burns everything down, I guess. Apocalypse, we associate with destruction, the end of the world. But it actually comes from a Greek term, and I speak more about this in that Wednesday message that you can still get. I'm not selling it, by the way. It's free, so. It means unveiling. There's a little revelation it's come to be associated with this text, Matthew 24 and 25, because in it, Jesus talks about the end of the age, the end of the world, and the coming back of Christ, and the day of judgment. And so it's a little revelation in the gospel. In it, Jesus predicts that the Jerusalem temple will be destroyed. Remember that it is. He makes this prediction somewhere roughly around 30 AD. 40 years later, under the assault of the Roman Empire in 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, not one stone left upon another, literally. If you go to Israel today, there's still not one stone left upon another of the actual temple. All that remains are on the south side, the steps that led up to the temple complex. They're not the steps of the temple, they're the steps up to the temple complex on the hill. And a retaining wall, a basement wall that is known as the western wall on the west side, or the wailing wall, because there... We go and weep and mourn for the destruction that came upon the temple. But it was foretold. And it came not just because of the wickedness of Rome, which we do not dispute, but also because of the wickedness of human hearts, like mine and yours, like Adam and Eve in the garden, trying to paper over our sin with fig leaves. But God burns all of that away and says, I have spoken and so shall I do. So Jesus says this temple will be torn down, but he is also speaking prophetically about his own body. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. But what can God do? God can resurrect. And now God builds a new temple, which is you and I. And that is the hope of the age to come. So the disciples later on come to Jesus. Now he's outside of the city. He's gone back to where they're staying. He's on the Mount of Olives. And they say to him privately, what's the sign that we should look for? How are we going to know? What time is it? What time is it? We don't have the time. We don't know what the signs are. How will we know when you're coming? How will we know when it's the end of the age? If we're supposed to be ready, we need to know when to get ready. And you know what Jesus' whole long answer to them is? You're not going to know the exact day or time. I don't even know it. That's basically what Jesus says. Only the Father in heaven knows it. So Jesus, in his incarnate role as Christ on earth, doesn't know the day or the hour. But what Jesus says is there's plenty of signs to look for, but it all boils down to this. Be ready. Because it could be any time. So Jesus says there's going to be false messiahs. Now listen. I want you, especially if you've heard this many times before, to pay attention and think about this not as something Jesus said 2,000 years ago that is written down in this book alone. It is that, and we'll never deny that. But I want you to think of it as what Jesus is saying to you today and to me. Here we are, and we're saying, Lord, when do we need to be ready, and what do we need to be looking for? And Jesus, today in 2022, or whatever year it may be, if you're hearing this message at a later point, as long as Jesus tarries and you're still breathing on this earth, Jesus is saying to you, there's going to be false messiahs. Don't fall for them. There's going to be wars, rumors of war. 
Don't be alarmed, don't be afraid. Doesn't mean don't care. But he is saying, don't be discouraged by that. But keep alert. These things have to happen, but the end is still coming. He says there will be famines. He says there will be pestilences, illness, pandemics. They'll come. Earthquakes, they come in various times, in various places. These are all just the beginning of the labor pains to bring forth the birth of the new age to come. Then, now listen, this is to you and to I today. You will be handed over to be persecuted. You will be put to death. Wait, go back. What? You will be put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. <laughs> Do you feel like, I can deal with being hated by all nations, but the put to death part kind of really puts a damper on it, doesn't it? Yeah, so much of a damper that look at this. Jesus speaking right now. Many will turn away from the faith. What time is it? Is it time to turn away from the faith? Is the faith outdated, outmoded? Is Jesus out of touch? If it's time to turn away from the faith, then turn away. But if it's time to tune in, then tune in and press in. But I tell you, it's not time to turn away from Jesus. It's time to lay hold of him. It's time to hang on to him for dear life. Hang on to Jesus tighter than you hang on to your own life. Be willing to let go of your life, but be unwilling to let go of Jesus. And yet I tell you, for all of us, for me, for you, unless the Lord enables us, we would all turn away. So call on the name of the Lord because whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't turn away from the faith no matter what. And if somewhere out there I hear you, I sense you, you're saying, I already have. I already turned away from Jesus. I don't think he'll have me back. Hear the words of the Lord. He says, I receive you unto myself today, right now. I forgive you. Just come back. Come back and be strengthened to persevere. You know where it says, many will turn away from the faith? It can also be translated, many will be offended. Is that our age? What time is it? It is the hour of offense. Never have we seen more offended people in the world than today? But it's not the end. It's just the beginning of labor pains. That offense, listen now, that is the spirit of heresy and apostasy. If you harbor that hate in your heart, you cannot be one with Christ. So get rid of and get away from all of that offense. Don't let it come near you. I tell you it's a plague. I tell you it's fire. It will burn you. Don't touch it. 
Do not allow yourself to give in to hate. I know it's a throwback in this era, but remember in the old Star Wars movies, that's what the emperor was always trying to get Luke Skywalker to do, right? Yeah, give in to those feelings of hate. Why? Because that's the dark side, and it's a vacuum. It will suck you in. It's easy to get angry. Don't do it. The righteous wrath of God belongs to God. Vengeance is his. Let love lead you. It is all right to be in opposition to the enemy, the devil, and to recognize evil for what it is. It's not only all right, it is essential. But don't give in to anger with people, with society, with all of that offense, because it is, you know what's causing all of this angst and anxiety? It's that. And it's of the enemy. But the one who perseveres in patience will be saved. Persevere to the end. That's what I'm telling you about this sermon. Because it's not the end yet, but we're getting there. Jesus says the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world, and then the end will come. Then he talks about an abomination of desolation. It's a reference to Daniel. That's for another message in another time. But he also says, when you see these things happening... There's going to be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. In fact, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Now, most people understand that Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, but he's not talking just about that. Like parables, prophecy has more than one meaning operating in it at a single time. Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, but here he's clearly talking about something beyond, because as bad as that destruction was, and it was horrific, Scholars estimate that perhaps as many as a million people may have died in the sacking of Jerusalem in the era surrounding 70 AD. It was a catastrophic, genocidal event. It was horrible. And for people in Jerusalem at that time, it may as well have been the end of the world. But it wasn't. And here, Jesus is talking about what is. So he's also talking about what is to come. He warns again about false messiahs that would even do deceiving wonders and works, but that his true coming will be as visible as lightning across the sky. And he says that the sign of the Son of Man in heaven will be seen by all, and all on earth will mourn, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, says Jesus, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. So you see, the parable of the budding fig tree is told as a culmination to help you and I lay hold of this because if we're like the apostles, we're saying, well, there's a lot of information. And you're talking about things that are happening at multiple times, and I think I'm more confused than when we started. And Jesus says, here's something you know. Look at a fig tree. What do they know about a fig tree that you and I should know now too? When he's talking about a fig tree, he's talking about us. Look at your nation. Look at your life. When you see certain things coming to pass, you know what season you're in. When the fig tree starts to put out its leaves, you know that springtime is coming to a close and summer is drawing near. And the time when there should be fruit. So, Is there fruit on your life? 
Again, think of the parable of the barren fig tree. Is God going to come and say, this tree still has no fruit? Think about the instance in which Jesus, right towards the end of his earthly life, on the way into the temple, sees a fig tree at exactly this time, end of spring, heading to summer, and it is budding and green, but there's no fruit. And Jesus says, never bear fruit again. And it withers and dies. Do you remember that miracle? That miracle relates to this parable. Because what Jesus is saying is, look at the signs of the time, look at the fruit of your life. And if there's no fruit in your life, look out, because the time for judgment is at hand. So look to the Lord in order to bear fruit. When you see these things, you know he is near, right at the door. I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And scholars and theologians and pastors and people and Bible study leaders, oh, they, what do we do with this? This generation will never pass away, but he said this 2,000 years ago. They're all dead. Even Jesus died. He's not dead anymore. But... How is it that this is about the end of time if this happened 2,000 years ago? And some people say, well, he's talking there about the, the destruction of the temple. And there are many people that are listening to him that are going to be alive in that time. Surely that is true. But when he says this generation, he's also talking about this fig tree generation. And where does that begin? In the garden of Eden with Adam and Eve putting on fig leaves. The parable itself contains a clue that what he's saying is this whole human race is not going to end. So one thing I can tell you is no matter how catastrophic things might get, and they are going to get catastrophic, the human race will not die out before Jesus comes. In fact, the human race will never die out because Jesus, who is God, is a human, and he lives forever. The human race is meant for him. But those that refuse him refuse humanity and become something less than human on the day of judgment. So Jesus is saying, this applies, listen now, 2022 or whatever day it is, wherever you are, it applies to you today, now. And you know that's important because that's precisely the purpose and the passion of the preaching that Peter gives on Pentecost. And that was a lot of peas. Please hear this. Today, now, this applies. Just like the angels that said, to you, today a Savior is born. Just like Peter, quoting Joel, who said, the promise is to you today and to your children and your children's children and all who are far off, all of this human race. This promise comes to all of us, but all of us have a time given to us in which we make a decision about how we respond. And your time is today. Don't wait for tomorrow, because tomorrow is not promised to you. Eternity is promised to you. Patient observance means recognizing this is it. This is life. You're not getting another one. And this one doesn't last forever. Now, eternity lasts forever, and you're going to be in it. And you're going to be face-to-face -face with Jesus. Are you ready for that? If anyone's ever been in an automobile accident, if anyone's ever had somebody die next to you, it's a very tragic thing. I realize somebody would say, I need a trigger warning for that. Well, listen, life doesn't give trigger warnings. 
Life comes at you. And if you have ever been where someone died right in front of you suddenly, an accident, illness, it is horrific. And I'm sorry to bring that to your memory in a way, and on the other hand, I'm not. It's no good to pretend that such moments don't happen. People die suddenly and unexpectedly. Life leaves a body like that. Somebody can be suffering for weeks, months, years, but when they die, it's in an instant. Another person falls off a cliff. Another person hit by a train. Another person suddenly has a stroke and drops dead. You say, I don't want to think about these things. That is life. And anybody who's lost someone in that way knows the devastation of that can unravel every other aspect of life. You literally think, I don't know how to go forward. I don't have any confidence because it could all end any minute. Yes, it can. And if you've ever talked to somebody that's been in a plane crash or a car crash where they thought they were dying, one of the most common things that you will hear from people is, I can't believe it's over. I can't believe it's, I'm going to die like this. Do you know how many people have died thinking that exact thing? Someday, you, me, our time ends. It could be Jesus coming in the clouds. And there's a lot of signs to suggest that I wouldn't be casual about that. I wouldn't relegate that to some point of religious fanaticism. No, friends, it is coming. I don't care if it takes another 10,000 years. He will fulfill what he has said. It will happen. But even if it did take another 10,000 years or more or less, there are many times in many ways between now and then when many people will find that they're going to him. And it's easy to think, I've got lots of time to deal with all this. All you have is this moment. That's all you have. And I want you to be awake to that reality. One thing that I want people to be able to say honestly about me, whenever I go, however I go, when my time comes, I want them to know that I was ready. Not because I'm some great guy, not because I always live my life in the ready moment, but because if we ask Jesus to make us ready, Jesus makes us ready. This life is not all there is, so don't live everything for this life. But don't forget that this life matters, so don't waste this life. Don't waste your time. Don't waste another minute. Today is the day to decide I should be living entirely for Jesus because when I stand in front of him, how much of my life is just going to look like space mountain with the lights on and how much of it is going to reflect the mystery and majesty of God? The happiest place on earth is just a bunch of toys. And I don't mean to say anything bad about Disneyland, okay? I'm saying something better about our lives, which is you are meant for more than just diversion and entertainment and having fun and getting comfortable and feeding your belly and every appetite that you and I could have. You are meant for eternity. You are meant for destiny. You are meant to bring other people to Jesus. How's that going? How is that coming? What are you waiting for? There's people on the right and the left, on every road and every freeway, in every home, all around the country, who don't know Jesus. They are headed for destruction. Who can tell them the truth? You can. So what are you and I waiting for? 
You need the fullness of the Holy Spirit to be ready and prepared. You need the wisdom of the word to be ready and prepared. You need the power of attentive, activated prayer. You need the body. If you're somewhere out there so disconnected that we never see you through the door, I know all the stuff that's been going on, but we need you here. It's great that there are people that are streaming live. Hallelujah and watching recording. We want you, but don't neglect the assembling together also. Whether here or in some other local body of Christ, be connected because you've got to be connected in order to be prepared. On that day, Jesus said, we're almost done. <laughs> I mean that in more ways than one. A day that no one knows specifically, but what you can know is it's the season to be looking. It's the season to be ready. But what the day or the hour is, only God in heaven. Just like in the days of Noah, everybody will be doing everything they do. Eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Right up to the moment that Noah went into the ark and shut the door and the rainwaters rose. And they didn't know what was coming until the flood took them away. That's how it's going to be, says Jesus. That's how it's going to be. So despite all of this stuff, you think, well, if I saw all of that coming. But listen, remember, we're not just talking about Jesus is coming. He's also talking about your going. You can be right next to somebody. My mother was in a car accident, as many of you know, when she was six years old. Her family was in the car. Two were taken and three remained. And I couldn't tell you which it was harder for because I don't know the mystery about what the two that were taken experienced. My hope and faith and trust is that Jesus took them. One of them was just an infant. The other was my grandfather whom I never met. But I know about the three that remained. And they remained in a world of misery for many years because of the horror and the trauma of that. But you know what? Jesus remained with them. So whether you're taken or whether you're left, I know we read this passage and we often think of it in terms purely of the rapture. And I think that there's nothing wrong with understanding it in the rapture, but I also believe that what Jesus is saying is people can be side by side doing exactly the same things, but they don't necessarily have the same outcome. There's two people in the field, one's taken, one's left. There's two people in the mill, one is taken, one is left. On the one hand, Jesus is saying, just because somebody says they belong to me doesn't mean they belong to me. The way that you'll really recognize them is the fruit of their life and the result of that. But listen also to this. Jesus is also saying, don't look to the person on your right and your left to determine how you're going to live. That's what time it is also. It's the time in which everybody is keeping lockstep with everyone else. What do other people think? What are other people saying? You know what comes out of that? I mean, go take a time machine to 1930s Germany and see people doing that. Well, what does, what does everybody else think? I guess this is what we do. What? We arrest those people and we kill them? Okay. Don't think that that's beyond us. Well, that could never happen in America. That can happen anywhere. And in fact, it's happened everywhere throughout human history. When the Israelites went to Egypt, oh, this is great. They like us. Then time passes. A pharaoh rises up. I don't know who these people are. Kill their sons. How does one human being say that about babies? How does Herod say he was born when? Kill every two-year-old male in that region. How does a person get to that place? By attending to the wrong things. Being of the wrong heart and the wrong spirit. 
So don't just look to people on your right and left to tell you. Look to the word. Look to the Lord. And remember, it isn't what other people think about you, but what God says about you that matters. But we in the church, we also want to remember, I don't want Jesus to say, two will be sitting in the PCF sanctuary when I come. One will be taken and one will be left. I don't want that for you. I don't want it for me. Oh, the pastor that sees everyone raptured and he's left in the pulpit. I don't want to be that man. And so what I know is, Lord, keep me waiting intently for you. Keep me focused on you. And you pray that way too. Know this, says Jesus. If an owner knew that the thief was coming in the middle of the night, he would have been ready. But the reason the thief comes in the middle of the night is because he's coming when the owner won't be ready. Now, the owner should have kept watch, should have kept the time, should have been alert. So, Jesus says, patiently prepare because you don't know when your time is coming and you don't know when your Savior is coming, but you can know that the kingdom of heaven is here right now. The Savior is here right now. So be ready. The wise and faithful servant is the one who will be doing what the master has put the servants in charge of doing. It'll be good if Jesus comes back and finds you doing what he asked you to do. He says, I'll put you in charge of more things. Some people might think, I don't want to be in charge of more things. Listen, that's up to the Lord. But what Jesus is saying is, I will be able to trust you with the mysteries of the kingdom. I will be able to entrust you with the joys of life and eternity. That's something that you want. Jesus says, the master of the servant who is unfaithful and comes on a day when he is not expected and in an hour that is not aware will punish the faithless servant. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a bleak place to end a message, but the reality is it is the message of the Messiah to us. There are people that are going to be caught off guard when their time ends or when Jesus' time comes, and they're going to regret it. Now, that's Jesus talking, but it doesn't have to be you. But it could be you, so don't let it be you. Also, don't let it be anyone else that you know. Now, you can't make anyone else's choice for them, but at least you can tell them the message. At least you can share with them the love of the Lord. At least you can tell them, be ready. But right now, what I want to do as we close is focus the attention of our hearts on the Lord and say, Lord, make me ready. Keep me focused on you. Help me hold on to you and your faith. Teach me to hunger for your word. Open the meaning of the scriptures. I give my heart and my life into your hands. I receive forgiveness and I ask for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Help me from this day forward 
to live awake, alert, and patiently prepared to meet you face to face. We're going to talk about more parables in the weeks to come, but in this passage, Jesus' words remind us, be expectant in your observation of what God is doing. Be faithful in your service to the body and to the world in his name, and be actively yet patiently prepared in your daily living. And if you do those things, no matter what comes in your life, I promise you, the Lord will make you ready and the Lord will bless you. And I pray that that blessing would remain upon you today and this week as you go from this place in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.